0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast. Making Theology Central. Welcome, everyone. It is Wednesday, January the 5th, 2022. It is currently 5.55 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church, located right here in Ovalo, Texas. And we are about to make a... Big detour. We're about to just swerve completely off the road and we're, who knows where we're going to end up. I hope this turns out to be beneficial. I was debating with myself all day. What should I do with this? How should I go about this? I had all kinds of different ideas based on certain circumstances. I kind of changed my mind and I'm going to go in this direction. Hopefully, it's beneficial. Now, there's been so many things that I needed to cover today in live broadcast. And I've only covered two. So, And I didn't even scratch the surface on all the things we needed to talk about. But remember, I I, I try to make theology central by trying to help you develop a, a a worldview where theology is central to that worldview. So we have to talk about a lot of things that are going on in the world. We talked about censorship, the Constitution. We, we, talked, we talked a little bit, once again, about the church and the state, Romans 13. We've talked about all of those things, but one of the key elements in helping people have a truly theological and biblical worldview is obviously Bible study. And this week, our Bible study exercise, that's why we do these Bible study exercises, is to try to keep you in the Bible because that study of the scripture helps give you a biblical perspective, and then we apply that biblical perspective to situations going on in the world related to church and state, related to censorship and being banned from Twitter, etc., etc., etc. We try to apply what we learn from the Bible to all of these situations. So it's really... You've got to understand both parts, right? The Bible study is, yeah, we learn the scriptures, we want to understand them, know how to interpret them, how to study them, and then I've got to, at times, turn on the microphone and go, now let's take the Bible and apply this to these situations. Both parts are critical to what we are what we are trying to accomplish through this podcast, and hopefully you appreciate both things. But the Bible study exercise is such a major focus now, and it's going to continue to be that that way throughout the year. Every week, we dedicate an entire week to studying one passage of Scripture, and this week, it's all Micah chapter 5. We've done a book background study of of, of the book of Micah, trying to help us have that background information to better better understand the historical context and the context so that we can interpret Micah chapter 5, a little bit better. We've done a little bit of work in Micah chapter five itself. I even threw out a possible outline. Now, the people participating in the Bible study exercise have really done a lot of hard work this week. I have received some just absolute great notes and outlines, and people have really, 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 really gone to work. And I, I in fact, what I want to wanted to do, if I had the time today. I was going to just turn on the microphone, and for one of the Bible study exercises, I was just going to really use the notes that someone sent me and work through their notes, adding my own observations, asking my own questions, and really just allow you to benefit from from, and see how other people are participating in these Bible study exercises. They are really putting in a large amount of work. And, and I, those are the people who are really going to benefit from this, but I wanted you to benefit from their work. So uh, we still may do that, but we're going to take a a major stop right now. Again, like I said, we're going to swerve off the road and we're going to review a sermon on Micah chapter five, because in the theology central, uh, discussion group, someone sent me a link to a sermon saying that they listened to this sermon on Micah chapter five. And now, you know, the rules, I don't listen to it, right? (laughs) You send <laughs> If you send me a sermon, I'm not going to listen to it first. I'm going to take the sermon and we're going to listen to it together in a sermon review. And so we're going to use this Bible study exercise time on Micah chapter 5 to hear someone preach a sermon on Micah chapter 5. I know this kind of disrupts the, what we've done because we kind of done a background study. Then we started working on Micah chapter 5, trying to figure out verse 1 trying to trying to figure out the verses after verse 2 and we we all i offered a theory and a and kind of a thesis and try to how to figure out some of those things i know this kind of messes that up and i and i'm really afraid that what's what's going to happen is this is really going to delay us this is really going to put us behind because uh, you know there's no way i'm going to finish this sermon review in one Episode. There's just no way. So that means I'm going to have to dedicate a, probably another episode tomorrow to this, maybe two. But um, I, I just hope this will be beneficial for those who've been working on Micah chapter five and reading it and reading it and working on it and studying it. I, I I think this will be great. If you haven't been doing that, well, then just consider this a random sermon. Like if you haven't been participating in the Bible study and you don't have any notes, no outlines, you've not done anything, then just you approach this as hey, this is just a random sermon review on Micah chapter five, right? So it's irrelevant to you that it's Micah five. It's just a sermon review. For those who've been working and working hard on Micah chapter five, this is your opportunity to hear how someone else preached on the passage. And then we get to consider what they've had to say, compare it with what you have discovered, what I have discovered, what you've sent me, what we've talked about. And and hopefully this will just, spark more discussion and more, uh, study on a very, 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 very difficult chapter. Okay. So Micah chapter five, we're just going to jump into this. This is called Micah five, Jesus and the nations, I think is the total title for this. Um, again, this is not about, well, again, it's obvious. I keep saying again because so many people get confused when we do sermon reviews. This is not about attacking anyone or trying to make anyone foolish because I literally don't know what to expect because I don't listen to them first. See, if I listened to it first and then came here and said, now we're going to review a sermon, well, then that means if it's bad, I'm purposely playing a bad sermon so that I can criticize it. If it's good, then I'm purposely doing it so that I can praise it. In this case, you can't accuse me of any motive because. I don't know what's in it. So clearly it's just an opportunity for us to hear someone preach from a chapter that we're studying so that we can hear a different perspective. Or maybe we'll hear the same perspective. Typically, that never works out that way because for some weird reason, our perspective sometimes seems to be, a different. I think what we typically get frustrated with when we listen to these sermons on, on passages that we're studying is that the sermons we listen to just seems to completely ignore or don't even acknowledge all of the issues found in the chapters. That drives me crazy. Like, Okay, we're going to we're going to we're going to take some time and review this sermon on this chapter that we're studying. And we listen to their sermon and you would think there's not one problem. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Here's a simple outline. Here's three points. Now we're done with the sermon. And I'm sitting there going that what if you listen to any sermons on on Isaiah seven, eight and nine, you probably got just as frustrated as I did. I'm like, they didn't even deal with all of the issues. And remember how many issues we discovered in those chapters. And mo- almost all of you this week have acknowledged Micah chapter five. I'm just like, I'm, I'm still just trying to figure out like what in the world is going. You see, was that then? Was that what, now? Is that future? Is that past present? I don't know what's going on. And, uh, well, we'll see if this pastor deals with the controversies or if he thinks it's all super easy as well. So are you ready? There's a 45 minute sermon there's no way we're going to get, you know, and, and, and who knows, um, I'm going to review as much as I can. Now, the person who sent this to me, who listened, if we reached a certain point and we stop, if you think, if you think, Hey, that was good. You don't need to go any further. Let me know if you're, especially if you're listening live, um, because we just want to make sure we get the main idea and see if we can add to your study this week of Micah chapter five. I mean, the Bible study exercise, that's what it's about one week dedicated to one passage of Scripture and if we need to we'll extend our study on Micah 5 and then we'll we'll have two bible study exercises going on next week we may have Micah 5 and another one so i don't want to do that but sometimes you have to do that so we'll see or maybe i'll who knows we may move Micah chapter 5 over to uh, maybe the Sunday school hour for victory baptist church i don't know i, I don't there there's so many things a little I literally could be here twenty-four hours a day and we would never even cover all the things we need to talk about. I, I'm still frustrated that I only got to two things so far this afternoon, but I thought we definitely need to spend some time in Micah 5. So are you ready? Sermon review time? There's no real I mean, I guess the rules are we just listen as carefully as we can and consider. I'm not I'm not as interested in like, oh, I've got to finish the review as as I'm interested in hearing what they have to say about Micah 5, and then it leads us to digging into the text. It's not about trying to prove some point about what's good preaching versus bad preaching. It's just about, okay, how do you handle the text? Let's go look at the text. It's about getting into the text more than it is anything else. All right, so are you ready? Here we go. Micah chapter 5. I've got the volume cranked all the way to 100, I know you're going to be like, wait, that's going to be too loud. Trust me, it won't be too loud because for some weird reason, 90% of the churches who post their sermons online seem to think that they need to post them like they sounds like they're whispering. Okay, I, 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 I don't understand that. But all right, here we go. Are you ready? Okay, I'm assuming you're saying yes. All right, here we go.
1: So this chapter continues with Micah prophesying about eschatological stuff. You may recall chapter 4 not only had Micah addressing the current situation at his time, but he also had in view the coming Messiah and his kingdom in the earth. He was doing this because he wanted to bring them hope. And hope is found truly in the
0: Messiah, in Jesus Okay, quickly, just when he s- speaks of eschatology, it's the study of end times. So he's saying that in this prophecy, there is a point... Uh, there are things that are related to eschatology. Now, what we have discovered is it's very hard to go, wait a minute. So, okay, that is pointing to Jesus, but is the next verse about Jesus and his first coming, or is that about Jesus and the second coming? Or is that going back to the historical situation at the time? You really have, if you think about it in Micah 5, and I maybe, maybe I'm wrong here. You may you may disagree with this. Uh We've got one person listening, said that they're ready, so they they can tell me whether they agree. I think when you deal with Micah, even in Micah 4 and in Micah 5, and this is true in, in, in many of the major prophets and the minor prophets, you really have three kind of time frames going on. You have the current situation occurring, the current situation at that time, like 700, 730, 750, you know, BC, whatever the year may be, you have the current situation at the time. Then you have that which points to, well, actually, okay. Now that I think about, it, think about, it, we really have four. So let's, let's go through this. So we have the current situation at the time. The, uh, when you read any of the minor or, ma- or major prophets, you have that which pertains to the situation at the time of the writing. What was the people facing what they were enduring? So you have the immediate historical context. Then, in some cases, you have a future, a soon future context, all right? When I say soon future, so like, let's say they're writing 735, then they may be pointing to something that's going to happen in the next 10, 20, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, maybe even 100 years, but something still pertaining somewhat. It's still, it's future, but it's connected to that immediate time. So you have the immediate context, and the close or soon future context. In other words, within the next couple of hundred years, something is going to happen. So, you have that which pertains to the, the immediate situation of the time of the writing, or the time of the prophecy. You have that which looks to something that is soon coming in the next couple of hundred years, right? Two, maybe 300 years, something along those lines. It's still relatively, relatively close to the time of the prophecy. Then you have that, which points to the first coming of Christ. Immediate context, the very soon or close future context, then the first coming of Christ, and then you have that which seems to apply to the second coming of Christ right now you you could argue a possible I know depending on your eschatology you could argue well you gotta you gotta you gotta have the church age there you gotta okay for now we're just gonna break it down to these these major parts so whenever you're dealing with Micah okay wait a minute that's applying to what was happening at the time all right wait well that that occurred about 30 years from this point or 40 years or 100 years you have that soon future close context and then you have that which well wait a minute Micah 5, 2, but thou Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Ju- Judah, yet out of thee he shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old from everlasting. Well, wait a minute. According to Matthew 2, 6, that's pointing to Jesus. So there's the first coming. Well, then you've got other things here. You're like, wait a minute. If that's talking about Jesus, that didn't happen in the first coming. So that has to happen in the second coming. So, immediate, soon, future, I think that's a good way of describing it, first coming, second coming. The problem is sometimes what you think is, wait, that's immediate, wait, that's soon, wait, that's first coming, wait, is that second coming? Wait, what's going on? because the text doesn't give you the little timestamp. You don't read the text and it comes right there next to it. This is the first coming. This is the second coming. This is the near future context. This is the immediate context. It doesn't do that. So it's up to you to start trying to figure it out. And sometimes all you can do is go look at 15 commentaries and they put it in all kinds of different time frames and timestamps. And by the time you're done, you're just overwhelmed and confused. So, Yes, are there things that relate to eschatology, to future, that or end times? There may be things that relate to that. Some things maybe just relate to the immediate context. Some things may relate to a soon future context. That's what we're going to have to figure out. Okay, I I, I hope that is somewhat helpful. I hope. I hope. I hope. All right. I closed Micah chapter five. I got to get back to Micah chapter five before he gets started because I want to make sure I'm ready to go. If he mentions anything. Here we go. Here's Micah. All right, Micah chapter 5. Have it open. All right, here we go. ...is Christ.
1: Things were very dim, looking doomed and gloomed at their, in their day. And in the midst of his prophecies around their impending judgment, he brings in these prophecies about the Messiah who will come in the days ahead. Chapter 5 continues this talk. That was going on in chapter 4. And we know that the situation in view for Micah is not just the situation back then, but also the times of the Messiah are in view because verse 2 here of Micah, chapter 5, is quoted as referring to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, as we'll see. So let's begin with verse 1. It says, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with the rod on the cheek. What in the world is this talking about? You may be wondering. You should be wondering, actually.
0: Now, I do appreciate that he's like, what in the world is going on? I do appreciate that because anyone reading it should be like, what in the world is going on? See, this is what blows my mind is people who do the, like, read through the Bible in a year and they read through the Bible in a year and they never, ever bring up, like, hey, I don't understand what was going on in, like, 50% of the Bible. I Like, I don't know how you just read it, and then you're like, I, I finished reading, but do you understand anything you read? Well, no, I'm—well, I'm, then—I mean, it was great that you read it, but don't you want to understand it? Like, when you read something like, now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops, like, what— I know my Bible reading schedule says tomorrow I need to be done with, you know, the old Testament, but wait a minute. What, who are the daughters and troops and what's going on and who just got smacked in the, in the side of the face? What's going on? Okay. Like I, I it's just, it's amazing how some people just like, no, nope, I don't, I don't really get it. And I don't really care. It's like, I know you, you have to care here. You have to understand. So I, I'm glad that he is starting with a very, a good approach. Now, Maybe, maybe he should spend a little bit more time in chapter four, but maybe start in five and then go back to four to try to figure out the context, because I think four may set up the possible Babylonian context here, possibly. But, well, I, I digress. Let, let's see where he goes.
1: This is referring to the current situation that Israel found herself in with Assyria. Many scholars believe that Micah is preaching this in 701 B.C.
0: Now stop right here. Now all preachers make this mistake, so I don't want to be super critical. And I'm not even saying he's making a mistake. Just remember, whenever you're dealing with, it's very important to try to remember this principle. Whenever you're reading any of the prophets, major, minor prophets, when you're saying it's dealing with Israel, You've got to ask, okay, which, are you talking Israel as a united kingdom or Israel the divided kingdom? If you're saying Israel the divided kingdom, don't you mean Israel versus Judah? So are you saying this is a reference to the northern kingdom or are you saying this is a reference to the southern kingdom? The north or the south, right? So sometimes Israel's just used as a generic term for both, but some of these situations, when you get into these very specific historical situations, so is he saying this is a reference to Israel facing the Assyrian invasion, or is this a reference to Judah facing captivity from Babylon? Totally different situations, there, right? Um, some something to consider here. In fact, I'm looking back. Uh, let me see here. Yeah, go back to chapter four, verse ten. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail, for now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. This seems to be referring to Judah going into Babylonian captivity, who will be redeemed from it. Is that is this in chapter five? Do we switch from Judah back to the northern kingdom Israel? Or is he just saying Israel to refer to both? You see where this can get very, 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 confusing. Unless you really are disciplined and trying to make sure. No, that's the southern kingdom. No, that's the northern kingdom. No, that's Judah. No, that's Israel. Like, okay. Wait, that's the capital of Israel. That's the capital of Judah. Okay, wait. Babylonian captivity. Wait, Assyria. Okay. And trying to establish all of that. It can get very, very confusing. I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm the first to acknowledge that, and preachers sometimes don't help.
1: When Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, had laid siege to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom.
0: Remember also that the northern kingdom... Now wait, he just said southern kingdom. That would be Judah, right? Isn't Israel used to refer to the northern kingdom and Judah the southern kingdom? He just said Jerusalem, Sennacherib, Southern Kingdom. Like these are, these are things we have to make sure we have straight or things start getting really, really confusing. Now he, he may just not, he may just be using Israel in a generic way. And I understand that that can occur, but I think we have to, for understanding's sake is to draw that distinction. At least I, I think so. You can tell me if you agree or disagree
1: kingdom has now fallen the northern kingdom fell in 722 bc it is now 701 the assyrians had toppled the northern kingdom and now they're at the doors of the capital
0: of the southern kingdom jerusalem there you go if the if the northern kingdom is gone then should you not net, do you now say that Israel now refers to the southern kingdom, or do you, do you want to say this is referring to Judah? Is not it better to say this is referring to Judah because the northern kingdom has already been taken by the Assyrians? You see how that that can I to me that can just it's so important to try to get these things down because it helps you have like okay I can hold on to this okay now I know who we're referring to. Can't be referring to Israel because they've already been taken by the Assyrians. This is Judah. This is the southern kingdom. This is going to happen. So is this a reference to the Assyrians or to the Babylonians? Like, okay, we, we've got we've got some things to figure out here.
1: Micah, as you may recall, preached both before the fall of the northern kingdom and subsequent To the fall of the northern kingdom. He preached during the reign of three different kings in the southern kingdom. This oracle was preached during or before the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib. Now, in the midst of this situation, the Israelites were trusting in their own military prowess to defeat Sennacherib and the Assyrians. They were also trusting in the enemies of God.
0: Okay, now he's saying that the southern kingdom is facing invasion from the Assyrians and he says Sennacherib. Now, I'm just, I just got one book right here. I'm just gonna open this up. I'm gonna find uh, its commentary on Micah. Here we go. Micah chapter five. The focus is on Israel's deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Micah contrasts great Jerusalem experiencing the Babylonian siege and humble Bethlehem where the eternal one will step into time to save his people. The future of God's plan of salvation lay in lowly Bethlehem. It's, It's saying that this is referring to the Babylonian siege, not the Assyrian siege. We, we've we got, we've got, we've already got disagreement. Now, again, what drives me crazy is so much preaching won't give you, they don't pull back the curtain and, and, and show you all of the confusion. They don't pull back the curtain and go, look, everyone, nobody has any clue. No, they close the curtain, come to the pulpit and like, Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is referring to uh, the Assyrians, Sennacherib, uh, coming against Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Nothing to get confused by. I pick up one commentary, just the one sitting here, and they, that's, oh, this is Babylonian. This is the Babylonians. This is the Babylonians. I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to do something really quick. This, this is the stuff that... Drag- now, I know what you're told in, in preaching and seminary. Don't don't let it... Don't get everyone all confused. You just got to make it simple. No, 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 no. If the people have come to study the Bible, why pretend that it's easy to understand when it's not? Let them understand the complexity of it so that when they f- discover the complexity of it, they're not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. It's, I, I don't know why my theory is so crazy, but that's Okay. Now, I know there's people who come to my church who wish I wouldn't do it this way, but it's it, to me, it's the only way that can, it's the only way it makes sense. All right, I'm going to go to Micah chapter 5, verse 1. And let's just, again, we've looked at some of the commentaries here. I'm going to go parallel. Okay, parallel here. Um, let's see here. um, What do they offer Here. They say, and we've already read some of these before, so I'm just going to read some of these again. Uh, it seems this verse, Micah 5, 1, ought to be joined to the foregoing chapter as it evidently belongs to it, and not to th- and not to this, which is upon a quite different subject. Thus consider after the promises given of a restoration from the captivity into which they should be carried and victory over their surrounding enemies. The prophecy concludes with bidding them first expect an enemy to come against them who should lay siege to their chief city and carry their insolence so far as to treat the judge of Israel in the most indignant and despiteful manner, such as striking him on the cheek of a face with a rod or stick. This is likely was fulfilled on Zedekiah, who was treated in a, 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 a horrible manner by the Chaldeans as if he had been a common captive. And they talk about this in Second Kings 25. Second Kings 25 is where they point to. 2 Kings 25, so let's go to 2 Kings 25 really quick, 2 Kings 25, well, 2 Kings 25, we start in verse 1, and it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, and the tenth month, and the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his host against Jerusalem, and pitched "...against it, and they built forts against it round about. And the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. And the city was broken up, and all the men of war fled by night by the ways of the gate between the uh, two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldees were against the city round about, and the king went in, And way towards the plain, and the army of the Chaldees pursued after the king and overtook him. And the plains of Jericho, of all his army, were scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him uh, up to the king of Babylon, and they gave judgment upon him, and they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out his eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him with fetters of brass, and carried him to Babylon. Or that all of that is Babylon not the Assyrians that's the Babylonians now that's two commentaries going that direction that's two commentaries so uh, I mean if you're listening live feel free to put in go wait 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 wait. no this is the Assyrians okay that's fine you, you can tell me why you think that but I just think it's interesting that that's two that goes with the Babylonian connection all right um See here, Matthew Henry, of course, is going to be of literally no value. Um, now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. The daughter of troops is all the same, who was before addressed Judah. All right, so this is to Judah. There's no question. So everyone seems to be, a, agree there. Uh, and then they point to this, this is being, well, Now they point to the Maccabees revolt. I don't know. Where they they jump to there, um, see here. Okay, this, they they point to uh, this another commentary. They smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek, the greatest of insults to an uh, an Oriental. Zedekiah, the judge or king of Israel, was was loaded with insults by the Chaldeans. So also the other princes and judges. The smiting on the cheek of other judges of Israel was a type of indignity, but they they point to the Chaldeans again. So, I I don't know. He he seems very confident that this is the Assyrians. He seems very confident that this is the Assyrians. But I, I don't know. I'm going to back up just a little bit. I know we did, we're not making it very far, but that's okay. We're gonna. Uh, this just this, this is why we do this. All right, here we go
1: in their own military prowess to defeat Sennacherib and the Assyrians. They were also trusting in the enemies of God and the arm of the flesh by making a pact with the Babylonians. The Babylonians were busy trying to create a revolt against the Assyrians at this time, getting various nations to rebel against the Assyrians. Assyrians. And one of the nations they courted was Israel. Hezekiah is
0: Israel or Judah. If the Northern kingdom is Israel, and if the Northern kingdom was already gone by the Assyrians, then they wouldn't be courting Israel. Would they not be courting Judah? Again, these are just like, these are very specific things we have to keep straight. If we don't keep these straight, it just turns into like, It just, it just, it falls all apart. We want to be as precise as we can be for the sake of clarity. This is not about trying to demonstrate who's smart, who's not smart. This is not about that. This is about, we've got to make sure we figure out what is clear because there's going to be so much that is unclear. If we, if we muddy up that which is clear, then when we get to that which is unclear, then it's even going to become more muddy, more unclear, and more a mess. We've got to keep what is clear as clear as possible so that when we venture off into the unclear and we, and we need to retreat, we can go back and go, well, right there, that's clear, that's clear. If if we, if we mess up what's clear and then we venture off into the unclear waters, we're going to get lost and we're going to drown and we're never going to find our way back to the beach and we're going to die. Okay. Is that, is that, is that, is that, is that that a good enough illustration? Is, is that make sense? Does that make sense? I'll I'll, I'll just give, I'll, I'll try to use this as an example. All right. So I'm in, not Galveston, maybe I was in Galveston. I don't remember where I was um, when I was younger and we were out in the Gulf of Mexico, right? Uh, we were out in the ocean the sea the wa- we were out in the water and and they and the people i was with we were very little i don't even know how old we were we could, we couldn't have been that old and they were like hey there's a sandbar out there if we swim far enough out there we'll, we'll I mean, we're going to be like in very deep 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 water but we're going to still be able to see the beach and then we're going to be able to stand on this sandbar and it's going to be like you know it's just going to the water's going to be like to your knees and they're going to be like here in the middle of the ocean and we're going to be like it's going to be really cool. And I'm like, okay, that sounds fun. So we started swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming. I'm like, where's the sandbar? Where's the sandbar? And then all of a sudden we realized we had gone so far out that we could not figure out which way to go. It's like we were lost. It's like, well, wait, where'd the beach go? Where? where? I don't even know how far out we were going. And I thought we were going to end up dying and end up drowning because, but we finally found our way back. But if for a moment, we were so confused about which way was what. It's just like we were in the middle of nothing. It was it was terrifying for at least a few minutes. Now, I don't remember how long the ter- the fear lasted because it was a long time ago, but I just remember that we, I, where is the, the sandbar? There's there, We're way out here. And then when we turned around, we realized, well, wait a minute, which direction, which way are we supposed to go? And I don't even remember who figured out which direction to go, but someone figured it out. But the point is the same thing in, in Bible study. You're venturing out into the deep. You got to have something that lets you know where what is clear, where you can get back to it, where you can find that sandbar and you can stand on it going, okay, we're talking about Judah. We're talking about a certain period of time. We're talking about the, well, are we talking about the Babylonians or the Assyrians? Why can't we agree on that? So I'm just saying that the commentaries I'm finding for the most part They're saying this is the... And then again, why in chapter 4 are the Babylonians mentioned? By name in chapter 4, verse 10. And in chapter 5, are you saying it just jumps? Some are pointing to way future to the Maccabean period of time. Others are saying, no, this is referring to, to what happened to Zedekiah. I mean... There's a lot of speculation here, but we got to figure out something that's clear. Are we going to get out into the deep and we're not going to find the sandbar and we're going to drown? And I don't like that feeling. I don't want to get out in the deep and drown. I I need something that I can swim right back to and stand on and go, okay, until someone figures out the way back, I'm just going to stand right here. In fact, I'm going to sit down right here in this sandbar until someone figures it out.
1: The judge spoken of here in verse one, he was the king of judah at this time the king of the southern kingdom at this time.
0: okay okay now we're going to use the right term okay he's been saying israel now he's going to say uh, judah now i know the text says the judge of israel i know that just remember what we we have to have clarification israel can be a generic term used but in our preaching and teaching we don't need to use the generic term we need to use the, the term that shows that, no, we're dealing with the southern kingdom here. We're dealing with Judah now. That's, that's why you have to do that. The text, I, I can't worry about what the text does. I have to be able to go, okay, the text uses the generic term. I've got to figure out who it's talking about.
1: ...time when it says they will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. He made a deal with them. This is why he let them in to see the treasury and the armory. Remember that? Remember Isaiah rebuked Hezekiah for doing that. So they were trusting in their military prowess in order to defeat the Assyrians who were knocking on their door. The Assyrians had already destroyed a number of cities in Israel. They made it in the southern kingdom. They had made it to Jerusalem. So God is actually saying to them, now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops, here. The daughter of troops means in the Hebrew warlike is what it means. The Lord was referring to them as warlike as they were trusting in their military ability rather than him. Trusting in their little deal that they had with the Babylonians rather than trusting in him. Joining hands with the enemies of the Lord. Trusting in the arm of man. So Micah says they will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. In other words, their military prowess wasn't going to pay out for them, play out for them the way they had, they had hoped. This term, rod on the cheek, is an expression of deep Humiliation. Hezekiah is the ruler or judge mentioned here, and he was humiliated in that he had to pay tribute to Sennacherib as the Babylonian revolt stalled. All right,
0: now he's saying this is Hezekiah. He's saying this is Hezekiah. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did he say Hezekiah or is is he referring to Zedekiah? Zedekiah or Hezekiah? Okay, wait. All right, hang on. Oh, wait. I'm, I'm going to back this up just a little bit. I want, I want him to go through all of that again.
1: With a rod on the cheek. He made a deal with them. This is why he let them in to see the treasury and the armory. Remember that? Remember Isaiah rebuked Hezekiah for doing that. So they were trusting in their military prowess in order to defeat the Assyrians, who were knocking on their door. The Assyrians had already destroyed a number of cities in Israel. They made it in the southern kingdom. They had made it to Jerusalem. So God is actually saying to them, now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops, here. The daughter of troops means in the Hebrew warlike, is what it means. The Lord was referring to them as warlike as they were trusting in their military ability rather than him. Trusting in their little deal that they had with the Babylonians rather than trusting in him. Joining hands with the enemies of the Lord. Trusting in the arm of man. So Micah says they will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. In other words, their military prowess wasn't going to play out for them the way they had They had hoped. This term, rod on the cheek, is an expression of deep humiliation. Hezekiah is the ruler or judge mentioned here, and he was humiliated in that he had to pay tribute to Sennacherib as the Babylonian revolt stalled.
0: Okay, so he's saying that this is Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah, let see here. Hezekiah, do I have dates? I'm looking for dates, I'm looking for dates. Uh, Hezekiah, Hezekiah, looking here, uh, let's see here. I'm looking, looking, okay. Okay. There is no evidence to indicate that Hezekiah formed an alliance with Babylon. Neither is there any, uh, indication that he joined the rebellion in 711 BC, led by Ashdod, the leading Philistine city. However, scripture does reveal that he finally did rebel, Uh, Sargon II had died in 705 BC and the successor of Sennacherib was uh, preoccupied with trying to consolidate the kingdoms of Hezekiah uh, when Hezekiah rebelled. All right. Um, All right. So Hezekiah would be somewhat in in, in this time frame. He's saying the 700s. He's he's putting it around the 700s. Remember he says around 700 is when this supposedly occurs. So I was looking for uh, I can't remember the date that we wrote down for the death of Hezekiah but yeah if I had everyone here in the church I would say grab their notes but if we look at Zedekiah Zedekiah was the last king of Judah which is 590 between 597 and 586 BC so if this is Zedekiah we're in a completely different time frame All right we have Babylonians we have Zedekiah or we have the Assyrians and Hezekiah, and we have a difference of about two hundred. Oh, let me see here. Uh, yeah, about two hundred years. Well, maybe a hundred years, a little over a hundred years. Uh, Five ninety-seven, so almost six hundred. So about a hundred years, I should say, about a hundred years. No, well, seven hundred six. No, it would. Yeah, it'd be about a hundred years. I'm, I'm horrible at math. Okay, so a little over a hundred years. So you see that this is not like, this is just not like, well, it doesn't really matter. This is a big deal. If it's Hezekiah, we're in the 700s. We have the Assyrians. If it's Zedekiah, we're in the late five 500s, almost 600. And we have the Babylonians. I mean, you're talking like, this is not like, eh, well, just pick whichever one. <laughs> You you just you just you know put in whichever king you want to fit in at this point in time. You're talking about completely different situations, so I would argue. My argument would be: Why are the Babylonians mentioned in chapter four, and then in chapter five we're back to the Assyrians, and we're we're back to Hezekiah? You can tell me which one you think works. Hezekiah or Zedekiah? I mean, literally, we're in verse one of chapter five, and we we we've already found ourselves in complete conf- conflict. What I don't understand, and this is what I just don't get with preachers: Why would he not ex- explain? Hey, some now maybe he's going to do this you know, he's, he's only five minutes in. So, you know, maybe I'm being, remember, I I don't listen to these beforehand. So sometimes I say something and then regret it saying saying it in a few minutes. Maybe he's going to clean this up. But at this point, why would he not be letting everyone in the church know some people think this is Zedekiah. Some people think this is Hezekiah. Some people think this is occurring somewhere in the 700s. Others people think this would be occurring, you know, somewhere in the 500s, late 500s. Some think that this is referring to the Assyrians coming in. Some people think this is referring to the Babylonians coming in. And here is the the arguments for both. I will think the text itself, put it this way. What are you going to use to draw your conclusion? Here, here's what I would ask. What are you going to use to draw your conclusion? You know what? how many preachers draw their conclusion? I know I'm going to give you a, a little a dirty secret. By picking their favorite commentary. <laughs> okay, that, that's how they figure it out, okay? And then you you come to the pulpit and you don't tell everyone that you're reading from a commentary. You just preach it like you came up with it when in reality, you just took it directly from your favorite commentary. I don't even bother to play those games. I just bring in all the commentaries and just go through the commentaries. I don't even pretend because look, they're, they're, which way do you go here? Oh, my argument would be at least just 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 current my current argument i can change my mind whenever i want is the babylonians are mentioned literally in chapter 4 and then it, it, it's like chapter 5 is like now all right like because of what we're seeing now gather yourself in troops now get prepared they shall seeming to be future this is what will happen. Gather yourself in troops, but this is what's going to happen. So this judge of Israel, this king of Israel, whoever it is, they're gonna get they're gonna get humiliated. They're gonna get defeated. But but Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is going to come a different kind of ruler, a one that is going to be different. Who's gonna, who's gonna ultimately be the ruler? Is that a contrast between Babylon and Bethlehem? Is it a contrast between Hezekiah, Zedekiah, and Jesus? I, 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 which one works? Which one works for you? I, I, I don't know. Let's continue. God allowed
1: them in his mercy and graciousness not to fall to the Assyrians, however. This was because... Hezekiah made righteous reforms within the land. Not because he had joined hands with the Babylonians, that was the wrong thing to do, but because he procured holiness in the land, in the sight of the Lord, through many righteous reforms of law and policy. So the southern kingdom didn't fall till 134 years after the northern kingdom. And by the way, you know who defeated them 134 years later, ironically enough? The Babylonians defeated them. The very people they were trusting in against the Assyrians.
0: So he's reading this like, okay, here is Hezekiah. He's trusting in the Babylonians. Okay, but I thought, wasn't Hezekiah looking to the wasn't he looking to the Assyrians? So, like, so Hezekiah at one point was looking to the Assyrians, and now he's looking to the Babylonians against the Assyrians. Is is that my understanding? And, and to fight the Babylonians, and then later on the Babylonians will ultimately take out Judah for captivity. I, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to put together everything we've studied. I'm trying to put together everything that we have studied here. In our study of Isaiah 7, our study of Isaiah 8, our study of Isaiah 9. Turns out to it turn turns out that all of that study was is, is going to possibly be somewhat beneficial here. So in his estimation, you have Hezekiah, he's fearful of the Assyrians, so he's made a bargain with the Babylonians, the Assyrians come in. He is smite. He is smited on the cheek. He's humiliated, but the Assyrians don't are not victorious. Okay. No. You. <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm trying to figure all of these theories out. I'm trying to figure all these theories out. Okay, let's let's just continue. Let's continue.
1: In the midst of their dire situation, the northern kingdom has collapsed. Assyria is knocking on their door. Things are troubled in the land. Micah brings hope to them in verse 2. He speaks of the coming Messiah and he says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, and this is how God always loves to do things, take the weak things, the little things, and use them for his purposes in the earth. He never needs 51%. He prefers a small number of men who love him to accomplish his purposes in the earth. He doesn't bring them to an arena full of people. He brings them to a stable like his son Jesus with a handful of people realizing what's going on, the magnitude of what's going on, is known by so few. He doesn't do it with the grandeur of the world to accomplish his purpose in the earth. So here he picks Bethlehem. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. Amen?
0: okay now we're at 50 minutes he's he's jumped to jesus he got he got past verse one by saying hezekiah assyrians they're not defeated but 130 something years later they'll be defeated by the babylonians okay but but he's going to give them hope He's going to give them hope that that 700 years from now Jesus the Messiah is coming. Okay. Now again that that's somewhat like wait, what is going on? If it's Hezekiah, would this be would this was this prophecy given to Hezekiah? Is this another sign? Like how many signs was Hezekiah given? I mean that that's that's another question to ask. Um I'm going to read from some of the notes that someone who participate is participating in the Bible study, some of the things that they uh that they sent here, just in regards to some of this. All right. Uh let's see here. Um uh, so the exhortation is to get the troops ready for battle because an enemy is coming against Israel's ruler. That's that's uh Micah chapter five, verse one. Again, I would say with it would be Judah's ruler, but okay. But I understand the text says Israel. I get the idea. Interpretation: It seems this was fulfilled in the past by Babylonian battle or Roman. I say no reason to argue that. Okay, so this 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 person found Babylonian. They, they again, you see the Babylonians. Why are why is this sermon? It's just so dogmatically asserted that this is the Assyrians. Like that's what I'm trying. That's what I, I'm a little bit baffled or perplexed by this. I don't know if anybody else is. I am. Um, it says possible fulfillments. Commentary seem to be in, in agreement that this was a warning to Jerusalem to prepare for an attack against them. Some say the judge or ruler is Zedekiah, and others support this being Jesus, the coming Messiah. That's interesting. Commentary seem to support two distinct possibilities that I can see. One being Babylonian, um, and another possibility being the Romans during the Maccabean revolt. There seems to be enough support. There seems to be enough support that this could have been already fulfilled. No future options offered. Uh, a Spiritual none offered that I could find. And what they're are, are stating there is that there's there's no spiritual fulfillment here, or really even have to have a future for us that this would already have been fulfilled. Now saying that five one is referring to Jesus, that to me becomes kind of weird. I I, I would have a little bit of problem with that. It, the Babylonians seems to fit here. Does this not seem to fit the Babylonians? I, I'm just, I don't get the Assyrian. I, we have Hezekiah. I understand the dating makes sense with Hezekiah. Right? Remember when we talked about, I'm going to uh, go back to a book on kind of an overview of this, of Micah. Um, when the uh, when the events of the book happened, Micah prophesied during the reigns of three kings: Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. All right, so that 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 would make sense. That that is, is I guess that you could try to get Hezekiah here. Um. Well, it was so. It was Ahaz, right? So I think I said Hezekiah had already re- rejected a sign. Ahaz rejected, so uh, Hezekiah, Ahaz's son. Okay, so I, I I misspoke there. I misspoke there. So, um, and that Hezekiah had paid a- attention to the prophecies. So, so that, that, that this is Hezekiah. So, is the prophecy directed towards Hezekiah? See, according to this, during the rule of King Ahaz, oh, so he, well, he he prophesied during Ahaz as well, according to this. Um, The Assyrians conquered Samaria, fulfilling Micah's word. So there's the Assyrians conquered Samaria, fulfilling Micah's word. Ahaz's son, Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, paid attention to the prophets Isaiah and Micah and instituted religious reform. I I think we, we have to, and I know we can't go any further. I know we're only really going to get to verse one. I'm just I just don't know why he doesn't. I guess maybe he's just arguing because of the time. This has to be Hezekiah. Has to be Hezekiah, Ahaz's son. Ahaz refused to sign, okay, and he was trying to look to, he was trying to look to the Assyrians, all right, to help him. And Hezekiah was looking to the Babylonians to help him with the Assyrians. All right. So that that would be the way he would be trying to, to argue this and trying to walk through this. I'm just, I guess I'm just taken back by this because I, I was just, Zedekiah and the Babylonians is kind of the direction that almost every commentary goes with. So this really threw me off here that this is Hezekiah and I was confusing Hezekiah with Ahaz, but uh, Micah, Prophesized during both of their reigns, so, but this is Hezekiah, so, and so Ahaz, so make make sure that this is the way with work. Ahaz looked to the Assyrians; Hezekiah looks to the Babylonians to stand against the Assyrians. The Assyrians come in, humiliates Hezekiah, but. Assyria, but Assyria doesn't conquer Judah, but then Judah 130 something years later falls to the Babylonians. And in the midst of the concern with the Assyrians, with the concern with the Assyrians, God gives Hezekiah and the people at the time a promise of the coming Messiah 700 years later to give them some kind of comfort that seems to be the direction that this sermon is going, and with that, we're going to have to stop. All right. I hope I clarified that. I got, I got, I confused myself with uh, with Ahaz, but uh, I was mixing Ahaz and Hezekiah because, well, I mean, father son, and this prophecy supposedly happens both of their during both of their reigns. I. It's just, I just, man, I, I, I was just so. The Zedekiah Babylonian thing. I mean, almost everything says that. Everything says that. Or at least I think there's got to be a commentary somewhere that doesn't. But I mean, someone else did their research. They're like Babylonians. I, I've done my research, Babylonians. And then you listen to a sermon and all of that's just blown up. But there's no explanation or even acknowledging of the difficulty. So I'm sitting here trying to figure... I'm trying... Basically what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to figure out his reasoning, and he's not even bothering to explain his reasoning. So that's hard when you're listening to a sermon. At the same time, you're sitting here trying to look everything up, going, wait a minute, wait a minute, what is he doing? What is he doing? I'm just, I'm a little perplexed. I'm a little perplexed. If anyone has any questions, I'll, I'll give anyone the opportunity. If anyone has any questions, Please feel free to ask them really quick or any of your observations or if you, if I confused anything, go ahead and please put that in the chat and I'll give you just a minute to do that. I'm looking around at all the books that are currently available to me going, what in the world, what in the world should I do here? Um, I'm just, I'm just a little bit perplexed here. Just a little, I am just a little bit perplexed, um, I'm going to look at one other thing here. I'm going to look at one other thing. Try to figure out exactly where this sermon was going. All right? I'm just trying to figure out okay. I'm going to look up Hezekiah, all right? So, um <laughs> all right no i i hope i hope i hope it was the, the per one of the people listening said that their 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 child lost a tooth in the middle of the of the of this so they're gonna have to listen again okay I'm, i understand that uh, i'm just baffled by this entire thing here um i'm just gonna read quickly just quickly From the, uh, and I know we're at an hour, but I'm just going to do this quickly. I have the Bible dictionary open up to an entry for Hezekiah. All right. So, Hezekiah, the 13th king of Judah, born the son of Ahaz, Uh, Hezekiah became known as one of Judah's godly kings. That an ungodly man like Ahaz could have such a godly son can only be attributed to the grace of God. Now, wait a minute. Now, Hezekiah, so Hezekiah was godly, but clearly he was ungodly but trying to join himself with the ungodly Babylonians in order to stand against the Assyrians. So so was that one of the sins Hezekiah committed? Let's see what they have to say. Hezekiah's, Hezekiah's father had given the kingdom over to idolatry, but upon ascension to the throne, Hezekiah decisively and courageously inhabited religious reforms. In the first month of his reign, Hezekiah reopened the temple doors that his father had closed. He also assembled the priests and Levites and commissioned them to sanctify themselves for service and to cleanse the temple. Appropriate sacrifices were then offered with much rejoicing, 2 Chronicles 29, 3-36. Hezekiah faced a golden opportunity to reunite the tribes spiritually. And the north, Israel had fallen to Assyria. Hezekiah invited the remnant of the people to come to Jerusalem to participate in the celebration of the Passover. Although some northern tribes scorned the invitation, most responded favorably. 2 Chronicles 30, 1-27 Hezekiah's reformation reached beyond Jerusalem to include the cleansing of the land, extending even to the tribes of Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Uh... High places, images, and pagan altars were destroyed. The bronze serpent that Moses had made in the wilderness centuries earlier had been preserved and people were worshiping it. Hezekiah had it destroyed. Uh, And you can see 2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles 31. The land uh, had never undergone such a thorough reform. When Hezekiah experienced a serious illness, the prophet Isaiah informed the king that he would die in response. Hezekiah prayer for recovery. God promised him 15 additional years. Uh, as evidence that the, promise, that the promise would be fulfilled, the sign, one of the most remarkable miracles of the Old Testament, consisted of the sun's shadow moving backwards 10 degrees. Shortly after there was a recovery from uh, illness, Hezekiah received visitors from the Babylonian king. Uh, then came with, they came with letters to congratulate Hezekiah on his recovery and, and to inquire about the sign and the land. But the real reason for visiting may have been to gain an ally in their revolt against Assyria. When when they lavished gifts upon Hezekiah, he in turn showed them his wealth, an action that brought stiff rebuke from Isaiah. There is no evidence to indicate that Hezekiah formed an alliance with Babylon. Neither is there any indication that he joined the rebellion in 711 BC, led by Ashdod, the leading Philistine city. However, Scripture does reveal that he finally did rebel, Uh, However, Scripture does reveal that he finally did rebel. Sargon II had died, and his successor, Sennacherib, was preoccupied with trying to consolidate the kingdoms when Hezekiah rebelled. With that that accomplished, however, Sennacherib was ready to crush Hezekiah's revolt. Anticipating the Assyrian aggression, Hezekiah made extensive military uh, preparations. He strengthened the fortifications of Jerusalem and produced weapons and shields for his army and organized his fighters, fighting forces under trained combat commanders. Realizing the importance of an adequate water supply, Hezekiah constructed a tunnel that channeled water from the spring of Gion outside the city walls to the pool of Siloam inside the walls. The, uh, that waterway, now known as Hezekiah's tunnel, was cut through solid rock extending more than 520 meters or 1,700 feet. As Sennacherib captured captured the fortified cities of Judah, Hezekiah realized that his revolt was a lost cause, and he attempted to appease the Assyrian king. To send an apology and tribute, he emptied the palace treasure and the temple, even stripping the gold from the doors and pillars. But this failed to appease Sennacherib's anger. At the height of the Assyrian siege, the angel of the Lord struck the Assyrian camp, leaving leaving 185,000 dead. And humiliation and defeat, Sennacherib withdrew to his capital city of Nineveh. Little more is said about Hezekiah's remaining years. That doesn't say anything about looking to the Babylonians for help. That doesn't say one thing about that he looked, he he compromised with the Babylonians to fight the Assyrians. It doesn't say that. I'm so utterly confused now. I'm so I'm so utterly confused. So supposedly this is Hezekiah who looked to the Babylonians to help him fight the Assyrians which he wasn't supposed to do, so he did bad. He is ultimately humiliated by the Assyrians and some way even though 185,000 185,000 of them is defeated and they are humiliated and they have to retreat, somehow it's Hezekiah who gets smacked in the face and is somewhat humiliated. But the comfort for them is that the, the Messiah will come 700 years later. I, I don't know. I don't, that is so, that is so confusing to me. That completely ha- has me baffled. So I we'll have to stop there. We'll have to stop there. You can email me your thoughts to newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I do apologize and I'll make it very clear. I did confuse Ahaz and Hezekiah because I was just so, when he mentioned Hezekiah, I was like, wait a minute, what is going on here? What is going on here? And um, because I knew Zedekiah and I knew Babylon, but this is why you listen to sermons. The reason we listen to sermons from so many different sources is because you get confronted with perspectives that you've never considered before. Hey, if this is Hezekiah, and him, this has something with him trying to join in allegiance with the Babylonians, and it, if that's the way we understand the historical setting, and if that's correct, I'm more than willing to change my view. But it's just weird that every commentary, everything just says Zedekiah, and and the uh, the coming, well, the coming captivity from the Babylonians. But hey, Judah, Judah, you're going to be taken into Babylonian captivity. Hey, Judah, your king is going to be struck down. Your your king is going to be gone. Zedekiah is, is completely taken off in chains and his children are killed in front of him. Zedekiah suffers horribly. Hey, that's going to happen. But, but Bethlehem, the real king is going to come. That fits. That fits the Babylonian situation more than the Assyrian. The Assyrian situation, they, they the Syrians fail. hundred eighty five thousand of them get destroyed. How, like, I don't understand this the, the 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 prophecy in in that context. The the Babylonian captivity. I understand the need for that promise. The Assyrians get defeated and run back home. <laughs> I I am so confused. All right. Well, there you go. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I apologize we didn't get further, but we stopped at the seven minute mark. We're gonna have to definitely come back to this. Seven minutes, we'll just say seven minutes. There you go, I'm writing it down in my journal. There we go. All right, we'll stop right there. Everyone have a great evening. Email me, talk about it uh, with uh, with the Theology Central Discussion Group and let me know what you think. All right, everyone have a great day. A great evening. God bless.